Welcome to Middle East Spotlight on SOS Radio. I'm Mai Weiss introducing my colleague, Lena. Today we'll be speaking with Daniel Vugo and Abby Weaver, directors of About a War, a documentary film about the Lebanese civil war that gripped the nation for 15 years, beginning in 1975 and ending in 1990. The film centers around intimate interviews with three ex-fighters from different sides of the conflict, tracing why they joined the war and how it changed their lives. About a War will be screened at the Soho Kazan on the 28th of November and in many cinemas across the UK, Europe and Lebanon next year. So, Abby and Daniel, welcome. Thank you so much for inviting us to uh, do this podcast. Thank you for having us. So, you've both been very active in a number of projects dealing with the conflict in Lebanon. Could you tell us why Lebanon? So this particular project started as a collaboration with a Lebanese sociologist at the University of Manchester. And it started as a project investigating the legacy of the Lebanese civil war, in particular on, on the physical infrastructure of Lebanon. And we were looking at the beginning about at electricity. We then realized that the legacy, the physical legacy, actually had a complementary human legacy and that the role of and the reintegration of ex-fighters uh, from the war had been left really unexplored and underdeveloped. And we started talking to more and more ex-fighters because they were those that were behind um, the use of infrastructure as a weapon, the weaponizing of infrastructure. And we also, we, we realized very quickly that they had rarely uh, spoken about what they'd done and that they rarely managed to convey Um, what the situation war was after the war um, to to anyone. So we then wanted to understand uh, what this amnesia amounted to and why was it that very few people were talking about the war and why was it that there was no shared narrative about what had happened during the war. Why did you actually choose the medium of documentary to express your findings? Well, we're both um, documentary filmmakers. Um, this is our second feature documentary. So as well as um, academics, Daniel is um, a senior lecturer at Brunel University London in film studies in the film department. And I've worked for a number of years in, in film and television. So it seemed like a, a natural way for us as filmmakers to, to record these testimonies. Um, we were... keen on on recording testimonies through film because we felt that 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 the ex-fighters kind of wanted to tell their story and it and in a sense kind of film allowed them or gave them sort of a platform to be able to make their testimonies more public um Ahed Bahar who is the Palestinian refugee in the film it was his first time on camera and Nasim Assad who um, lived in Tel Al-Zater, was a, a communist ex-fighter. He'd never done something quite as big as a feature film. He had done some filming before. Um, and Assad Shaftari had done lots of kind of television. He has featured also in other films, um, but perhaps not recording his testimonies in this way, whereby we're recording kind of very frontal shots, sort of relentless interviews um, that took many, many, many hours. So... We wanted to use film, I guess. Also, it gives you license to 
interview for many hours. So perhaps when you usually go and do an interview, spend a couple of hours writing down questions or using a tape recorder. But we were spending eight hours sometimes with the ex-fighters um, over perhaps three, four, five different days. Um, I think the longest interview was eight hours in a car going back to Tel Zatar with Nassim Assad. Um, so, yeah, it's for us, it was a way of, of capturing the story and these intimate stories, both through the voice, but also looking directly at the face. And I think that, just to add to what Abby was saying, a film has this incredible power of putting together memories and the imagery that these memories evoke and to simultaneously talk about the past and reflect on the present. So, for instance, one of the fighters that we spoke with, Nassim Asa'ad, um, takes us back to the place where he lived and where he fought one of the harshest battles of the of the Lebanese Civil War, which was the siege of Tal al-Zatar, when the Christian militias besieged this Palestinian camp, which was also home to many poor Lebanese who had moved from southern Lebanon, the Bekaa, or, or poorer areas around Lebanon. So he takes us back there, so he's reflecting on the past, and yet we see in the film how much this place has changed, the uh, new developments, uh, and his memories somehow channel also uh, a different imagery that is going to inhabit the present images that we see. So cinema is and documentary film is very synthetic and allows this kind of different temporal dimensions to come together in one image. So at the beginning of the film, uh, you tell us that there are no official accounts of the war. Um, how did this affect the making of the film? When... There are conflicting accounts. So there, there, there are accounts, but they're, they're often conflicting. So perhaps there would be three or four or five different death tolls, for example, for one incident. So I think for me, that was really problematic because you would go and try to look for figures or facts about what happened on a particular day, on a particular bombing, on a particular battle. And you have these conflicting accounts according to who recorded the information, who was taking the death toll, whether it was the Red Cross, whether it was the police, um, whether it was the actual party who, the political militia who had done the thing or the defending militia, you know, it's really complicated to take all of these bits of information and actually find some sense of truth in it. So I think that we wanted to, in fact, use that um, as a way, in fact, to create narrative, this idea that there is no one truth and that there are multiple perspectives, multiple truths, multiple histories within one conflict or within one day. So... Uh, it kind of, I'm trying to spin it, I guess, as a positive thing for us, really, that, that, that you go into it, you're trying to find information. Information is very difficult to find. It's often biased according to which political party was fighting at the time or um, which political party also is still defending their role in the war because many of these uh, militias then were reintegrated into uh, Lebanese society, into government, in fact. So, yeah, it's a it's a, an interesting kind of moving between these facts and these fictions and trying to find, you know, I guess, uh, let's say a truth for the person who's telling their story. And even we found out during the filming process that even the combatants themselves are often completely unclear as to the amount of 
victims uh, involved in a particular incident. So the siege of West Beirut by the Israeli army, um, helped by the Christian Lebanese forces, um, caused thousands of, of deaths in, in a space of very few weeks. Um, there are no official body counts, there are different versions, but you're looking at at least three to 4,000, at least just in Beirut and just among the civilian population. So without counting the uh, leftist nationalist forces or the Palestinian uh, forces who were fighting to protect the West, Beirut enclave. And when we, we mentioned this figure to Assad Shaftari, who was involved in the besieging of Beirut, he, he was completely, he was beyond surprised. He did not recognize that figure, that figure at all. Um, the reasons for this might be, you know, I don't know, he might have removed it or, or he might have never actually seen what the body count was, was the, what the, what the death toll was. So it, it is, it is very difficult. The same goes, for instance, for the very famous, infamous massacre of Sabra and Shatila. We've spoken to many people on men on different sides and everybody has a different figure. Um, whatever figure you accept, you know, it's what happened was, was, was terrible and the memory of that massacre should be kept alive. But, but there's really conflicting opinions on how many people. It goes from 200 to 3,000. So it's very difficult to reconcile these different points of view. Um, this documentary is structured around Ahad, Assad and Nassim, all of whom were fighters in the Lebanese civil war. How did you go about finding them? And how did your relationship with them evolve? I mean, you already mentioned that some of them um, had experience in front of a camera and some uh, never. Were they open to the idea of being interviewed on the camera? We interviewed um, lots of different people, so not just ex-fighters. In the end, we decided to make a film about ex-fighters, but we, we interviewed lots of different people from victims of the Sabra Shatila massacre, for example, through to um, people who are now in government, um, particularly actually one gentleman who is in government for, with the uh, Amal movement. Um, but we decided to stick with these ex-fighters because we we were interested in the story that they were telling from their perspective and, and felt that kind of the perpetrator or the participant side of of the story was was lacking in, in the Lebanese context. Um, we found the ex-fighters through gaining access to a couple of different organisations. One was Fighters for Peace, um, which is an NGO that 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 helps ex-fighters come forward and and speak about their experiences, and also attempts to influence and to educate young people in Lebanon today about war, about weapons, and and you know perhaps you can say how not to make the same mistake again as they did. Um, and Ahed, we were introduced to Ahed through the, the popular committee of Shatila. Um, and it was through the ANND, which is another NGO run by um, Ziad Abdel Samad, that we gained access to the popular committee. So it's, it, was, uh, it was gaining trust, gaining access um, to different organisations. It wasn't easy to get ex-fighters to speak on camera. There were many, many more ex-fighters that we spoke to off camera who didn't want to go on camera. 
Um, one of which is a is a lady who I, I won't mention her name, but she was a, a female fighter. We were really keen on on getting her on camera, but just to give that balance in the film because there were female fighters. Um, That's incredible. Mm, a very small percentage compared to men, but nevertheless, uh, she was a prolific fighter. You know, uh, a well-known fighter for the uh, the Christian um, Lebanese forces, if I if I'm correct. The Kataeb. Yeah, a Kataeb, Lebanese forces is kind of a branch that sprung out of the Kataeb. Um, but, but in the end, uh, she didn't want to go on camera. I mean, if I remember the figures correctly, there's about 35 ex-fighters with Fighters for Peace who have come forward and speak publicly about their role in the Lebanese civil war. And Assad Shaftari predicts that there was approximately 200,000 civilians fighting during the Lebanese civil war. I mean, this for us was a huge problem, especially since these ex-fighters were telling us about suicides, for example, people that they knew who, who were ex-fighters, who they knew had committed suicide. And they, because they're ex-fighters, know why, due to shame or what have you, Perhaps I don't want to, you know, put a reason on it, but there are all these kind of underlying issues to ex-fighters not being reintegrated into society and many of which don't come forward, either due to shame for what they've done or perhaps they're still tied somewhat to a political party, uh, an organisation and them coming forward as an individual and renouncing what they did during the civil war would be also a, a group apology. So there's this careful positioning of not wanting to make an apology or not wanting to come forward because it would, it would perhaps shift the delicate power balance also within Lebanon. Um, by no means... Um it is possible to talk about everything, even with the ex-fighters that have decided to come forward. You know, there's, there's many things that they cannot go on record with. And precisely because there's such a small minority of ex-fighters who are willing to speak publicly, they, they all feel that they cannot implicate others. So they would not want to speak about anything that might in any way uh, involve people who have not come out publicly. And, um, and also, of course... As Abby was saying, the, the balance of power is fairly precarious in Lebanon. You know, they've been now trying to form a government for months and it looks like they might get one before Christmas. But, and of course, the, 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 the memories and the events and, of the civil war have a knock-on effect or are likely to can be manipulated for political reasons. So, of course, the ex-fighters have to be quite careful what they say, who they implicate and to what extent. So most of them tend to speak just about themselves without trying not to uh, involve other people who might still be in power or might still play a, a prominent role in, in Lebanese, uh, Lebanese politics. And then, of course, there is a considerable amount of trauma that has to be, that has to be taken into account and, and that makes every kind of conversation with them, in particular on camera, particularly sensitive. Um, the reason, that the impression you get when talking to them, or at least to some of them, is that they're not demanding to be forgiven, and they're clearly not demanding that people forget. In fact, the opposite, they demand that people remember. But they are operating on this kind of, if you want, animating guilt. They're looking for society itself to understand and acknowledge what has happened and reflect on what has happened. Because... Overall, um, Lebanese society seems to kind of avoid 
all of these conversations. About the war raises many strong questions. What compels someone to pick up weapons and fight? Can we kill and be sorry? What happens after the war is over? Did the making of this film give you any answers to these questions? And were they different from the experience, uh, oh, from the expectations uh, you had going into this project? I think we, we went through a number of uh, responses to what we were hearing. Because obviously, as, as a filmmaker, as a researcher, you try to keep a certain distance from what people are telling you, but it's not always possible to do that. And in particular, when you touch on you know, civilians uh, being massacred or the many quite terrible and, and absurd events of the war, you, you, you do react. And so we were moving from a certain repulsion and... Uh, moral condemnation to a certain level to an extent of empathy you cannot go into something like this without leaving yourself open to feel a certain amount of empathy because otherwise you're just not doing your job you know you're kind of refusing to listen to what they're saying to you i think what this has taught us although you know coming to any kind of um definite conclusion it's uh, very difficult and probably would, wouldn't be right because the process of us learning from this continues. But is that unless we're willing to listen to a variety of experiences and unless we're willing to promote dialogue to try and at least uh, build a shared narrative on these kind of issues, in particular in the case of civil wars, we will not achieve... A, a proper or a more satisfying resolution. And so the questions, and the people in our film say that, that were there and the, the reasons that caused the civil war have actually not really gone away. Large, for many reasons, for geopolitical reasons, of course, Lebanon is used often as a proxy country by more powerful neighbours, but, but also because within society, this kind of conversation, this kind of dialogue has not taken place or has not taken place enough. I think we were both really tired of the images that are usually in the media, that usually you have this kind of polemic of, you know, the hero and the perpetrator, you know, the evil one and the good one. And then the same also with refugees, for example, that you have the poor child refugee and, and you know, Ahed Bahar is a refugee himself who fought and he's a, he's a, a 40 odd year old man, 50 Sorry, he'll, he'll like me for saying 40, but <laughs> he looks 40. No, a 50-year-old odd man who, at 14 years old, picked up a weapon as a refugee living in Lebanon, his family having been kicked out in 1948 from former, well, from, from Palestine, which is now Israel. And, you know, I think in a sense, these ex-fighters addressed those kind of polemics that... These questions of kind of, can you be both good and bad? You know, can you be both a refugee, for example, with a weapon? You know, can you also be, have so much hatred as Assad Shaftari would admit that he had so much hatred, so much um, uh, racism as well, you know, uh, hatred towards the other. You know, he didn't feel himself like he was Arab. You know, he, he was different, you know, and, and, and this otherness, this difference kind of caused him in the end to pick up weapons and, and fight for that difference. And, 
you know, can he also be good now? You know, and, and I went through, as a filmmaker myself, I won't speak for Danny Ely, but I went through all kinds of um, motions, especially towards Assad Shaftari, you know, because our head, Bahar, is, I mean, Shatila refugee camp now is an abomination of human rights. It, it's really, you know, people are living in, in, in such terrible conditions without passports, without freedom of movement, without the ability to go back home and with issues of water, electricity, the standard of living is is just, I don't even have words, it's abominable. And and then you, th- you think the same with Nassim, you know, Nassim was a, a poor young boy who moved from the countryside to Beirut and found himself again in a Palestinian refugee camp wanting to have a better life joining the Communist Party. And I guess, I don't know, from the position that I was coming from, I could, you know, I, 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 can, I can never give a reason for people picking up weapons. I don't believe in weapons. I don't believe in killing. But then the empathy perhaps for their two stories was more for me than it was for Assad, who was, you know, relatively wealthy, let's say, or affluent uh, Christian who, you know, was at university studying engineering and, and, you know, the hatred that he described. So I went through all kinds of motions with Assad, who I consider a friend now, that I went through all kinds of, you know, hatred towards what he did or feelings of passion against what he was doing. And I remember in one interview, and I regret, I will regret this forever, but this changed uh, my life in a way that, 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 and it was something referring back to what Danielli said earlier about of Assad not knowing how many people were killed during the 1982 siege of Beirut. And I was so impassioned and so furious that he didn't know that I, I interrupted the interview. It was the completely wrong thing to do and said to him, you know, you do realise that X thousand people died. You know, he thought only a thousand people were killed, you know, and these tensions that in a sense, you know, we were also going through listening to these traumatic stories again, sometimes for eight hours on an end. We're going through these motions of, of hatred, of fear, of othering, of empathy. It's, it's an interesting process of, of coming round then to accept that you can be both good and bad, that life isn't black and white, that to accept that someone like Assad can hate and then also at some point want to share love and to do something good and to make something good of the atrocities that, that I think he would agree that he was part of committing. And in a way, you know, unless we, so the, these processes of othering, this, um, this mar- process of marginalization that are triggered, there were triggers for violence in 1975, um, this ideological manipulation are still there today. In many different contexts in the Middle East, but not only in the Middle East, um, you know, the fear of the other, the fact that picking up weapons is the only thing you can do because you're destined to a life of poverty and, and, and misery, um, the fact that you are ideologically, to an extent, mobilized by by ideas that you're not quite able to critically evaluate. These kind of things just do happen. So. There is something that we can learn from the reasons why these people decided that it was a good idea to invest 15 years of their life since they were 14, 15, until they were adults, um, to fight. We can learn from that. Well, in fact, we should, because um, most of the time, I think what we tend to do is think, okay, there's a military solutions to conflict. So if we just bomb the hell out of this particular place and these particular people, that will 
will resolve it. Uh, and then that as soon as kind of the conflict is over, I'm thinking about Iraq, for instance, or sooner or later, Syria, then things just go back to normal. And then this kind of uh, currents, ideological currents, this kind of uh, material conditions are just have just gone away. Well, they don't go away. We need to learn to understand what compels people to fight in order to prevent the next generation of 13, 14 years old uh, from doing exactly the same. Um, I'd be interested to know um, what the response was um, to two Westerners doing such a like touchy, I mean, very um, sensitive, doing a documentary about such a sensitive theme, firstly. And secondly, uh, I'd be very curious to hear also about the different responses you've received from within the Middle East and in Europe or the Western world to uh, the documentary so far? So the team actually was a mix of, uh, of different people. So um, there was an important, considerable Lebanese component to the team. So the Lebanese sociologist uh, Dana worked with us throughout the production of the film um, One of our research consultants was Ziad Abdel Samad, who's the CEO of the ANND. Uh, and in general, we had a lot of support on the ground from Lebanese NGOs or uh, Lebanese organizations. Um, we had help from a Lebanese production company. So, in a way, we probably were perceived as being half and half rather than being perceived just as Westerners. But as far as the kind of Westerner components is concerned, In the context of Lebanon, where your belonging, political and territorial, defines so much of your identity. If, if you're familiar with Lebanon, you know that one of the first questions you get is, what's your name? And if your name is a non-sectarian one, then they'll ask you where you're from. And in that way, they will know whether you're Christian, whether you're Sunni, whether you're Shia, whether you're Druze or Christian Orthodox, and where, which part of Lebanon you come from. So the fact that we were none of this, that we couldn't be, you know, I'm Italian, I'm is British, that we couldn't be put in any of these boxes, in a way allowed us to move from Shatila, where we spent a lot of time filming uh, with a Marxist-Leninist political group, to the houses of right-wing Christians who still regard the Palestinians as the enemy, the, the people who are taking, trying to take over the countries. We wouldn't have been able to do that if we were, if people could identify us as belonging to one or another uh, political, religious, sectarian identity. So, in a sense, that gave us a slight advantage in that we were come, we were relative outsider to it, despite having the you know, Lebanese people also working with us. When we were fronting a meeting or an interview, we were perceived as being outsiders, and people, in a way were less concerned because they were not facing someone whose family they might have um, contributed to this place or who was an enemy during the war and so on and so forth. And actually, just to add to that, um, Dana, Dr. Dana Abbey Ganem, who's at the University of Manchester, who we were collaborating with, she's the sociologist who we were working with on the project. You know, she was 
I don't want to speak for her, but I know she was going through a number of encounters where she would meet with ex-fighters who had kind of kicked her family out of the flat where she lived as a child. And, and you know, there'd be this strange interaction of the ex-fighter being like, oh, you live there. Yeah, I remember, you know, I squatted that in 19 whenever. And so, you know, the, the, there was this uh, whole strange interaction there. But just to... Um, answer about responses that the film, uh, I mean, we, we only finished editing the film a couple of months ago, so it's still very new. Um, it is getting some traction with screening um, in London on the 28th of November, um, but we'll be screening in Lebanon in February. So, you know, we'll really understand a response from a Lebanese perspective. We'll, we'll come back and, and tell you about that in February. But we have screened it to the ex-fighters who were involved in the film and we had a really positive response. You could imagine we were really nervous. You know, you make a film, you, you capture, you know, these stories, traumatic stories that, you know, if they were difficult for us to listen to, I, I can't even begin to imagine how difficult they were to for the, for the ex-fighter themselves, for the contributor to unravel them on camera to you know, what were strangers, you know, we now have known them over two years. But, you know, then when you're staring someone in the face, you know, having met them maybe twice, you know, it's, uh, I really have a lot of respect and very brave for, for doing that, I think, especially within the Lebanese context. Um, and we and we received a really positive response from the ex-fighters um, because their mission really is now to educate others on their story, on 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 what the consequences of picking weapons up are, I think they felt that the film could be used to kind of spread that message and to and to share their stories in a much more wider context than than just within Lebanon, which is where they're mostly working at the moment. Um, yeah, I think we've received a, a good response so far, but we'll be able to update you more. <laughs> We're looking forward to it. I just wanted to add that in Lebanon, so the, some of the ex-fighters we've, working, we've worked with have adopted the film as a tool for their own peace education and peace building initiatives. So they already want to take the film around and we will do screenings with them, not just with them in the audience, but they are actually taking the film to younger people who are either already recruited in, in some kind of combat or are at risk, in particular in the northern city of Tripoli, where there has been confrontations and clashes, mortars have been used, 300-something people have been killed over the last few years. So there's, there's still low-intensity conflict there. They work very closely there with schools, with community groups, to try to either get people out of uh, a situation of uh, combat of, or to prevent, to do conflict prevention. So we will be screening the film there, the film will be taken there by some of the ex-fighters. So this is what the film really is for. At the end of the day, we want the film to be useful for them, to have some kind of an impact in that sense. So to see that they have get, got behind the film, that they want to use it in this way, is extremely rewarding for us. At the end of the film, we, the viewers, are left with a very mixed, uh, very mixed feelings. The unsettling music, uh, the disturbing archive footage and certain phrases from the interviews suggest that the conflict has never been resolved, like a quiet volcano that could erupt at any time. Does this reflect on pers 
on your perspective um, on the situation in Lebanon today? Uh, yes, I think to an, to an extent it does. Um, and just yesterday we received an email from a, from a Lebanese journalist who was, who was reviewing the film saying that, you know, so after watching the film, um, you have the feeling that so little has changed. So in many ways, yes, there is a kind of uh, under kind of simmering tension is there. On the other, to an extent, political situation, I'm, I'm not a political analyst, but the political situation to a certain extent does not allow for open confrontations yet because there is one group that is overwhelmingly more powerful and has more weapons than any other. So, uh, and that's Hezbollah. So, to an extent, politically, the antagonism and the tensions are the same and along the same lines. From a military point of view, it is difficult to imagine now, right now, the explosion of a similar civil war, simply because there is no balance of power. There is one group that is just much stronger than all the others. I think from you know the little experience that we had working in, in Lebanon or filming for, for over two years and, and working perhaps around the, the subject, the context, the themes for th over three years, I think for us on the ground, you could see that this sectarian divide that continues in Lebanon runs deep. You know, it's... It's, it's within the environment, you know, it, it's no secret you walk on the streets and you see crosses or, you know, the Mother Mary on a street corner and you go somewhere else and, and you see, I don't know, the evil eye or perhaps one or two more mosques than that were there before or a vowed lady and, and you know, the, the divide is very much there. Some people that we've spoken to express that the divide after the war was much, much more then before the civil war um, because the civil war forced groups to group together even more if that makes sense so what what may have been a, an area of mixity would would now be an area with a predominant uh, religion or sect within it as opposed to to having mixity at the same time there is mixity within Beirut for example in areas where there are restaurants or you go out in Mar Mikhail or Jemaize or um, downtown or Hamra, there are places where you do see this mixity, especially with the younger population. And I wanted to add to that, that, that whilst Lebanon continues to have these kind of precarious political, but also sectarian divides, very much ingrained within society, there is an incredible civil society in Lebanon that really works. You know, there are people who dedicate their lives to changing other people's lives and I think that this for me is 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 crucial to stability in Lebanon of course the government has to do something more you know it's no secret of uh, every, every Lebanese I'm sure will 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 say something similar you know the, the government has to do more but civil society really leads a, a peaceful path I believe in Lebanon and 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 it's through civil society through NGOs through charities through people on the ground that really are you know, I don't know, let's say changing things on the ground and, and, and passing messages of peace, let's say, uh, as opposed to, you know, these power kind of um, power differences within government. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful thing, civil society in Lebanon, really. I think that um, the ending of the film is deliberately ambiguous. Um, on the one hand, because we were not 
in a position, I don't think anybody is, to, to make a prediction as what will happen, but also because there are contrasts which are summarized by the final images of the film. On the one hand, it's a country that is quite heavily militarized, where you can see the presence of um, military structures very visible in the city. And on the other, it's also a place where there is a very, as Abby said, lively um, civil society, and there are places where people mix and, and go out. So it, it, it's a place of, in a sense, where at the moment so these contrasts are quite visible. They, they're very much there. And so we wanted the ending of the film to reflect, to reflect that. Thank you. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? So the film will be screened on the 8th of January at the Home Cinema in uh, in Manchester and there will then be screenings in Lebanon in February and more screenings in London around March and across the UK. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Middle East Spotlight here on SOAS Radio. A special thanks to Danieli and Abby for your very interesting insight into this uh, fascinating documentary about a war. And thank you, Lena. For joining us. It's just a reminder to our listeners that the film will be screened on the 28th of November at the Curzon. Make sure you check it out. And thank you. Goodbye.